If you're a parent, teacher, or school leader, and you're sick and tired of the frustration, anger, and unfair treatment of children at high risk in our public schools, then perhaps it's time for all of us to do something about it. In this podcast, Dr. Amitra Berry brings you tips, tools, strategies, and tactics to build successful solutions while touching, moving, and inspiring all of us to transform our schools so that every child thrives. Here's your host, Dr. Berry. Hey there, Equity Warriors. Welcome back. Thanks for tuning in. And a big thank you to those of you who have subscribed to my YouTube channel and who are now watching these video podcasts on YouTube. The subscription link is down in the notes. So if you are not already a subscriber and you would prefer to watch as opposed to just listen, go ahead and look down in the notes from the show. Click on that link, subscribe, share, and turn on those notifications. I want to open today with a quote from Frederick Douglass, who said, once you learn to read, you will be forever free. And that was something that resonated with me for years. It was in the signature line of my email, because my primary focus for almost 30 years now has been teaching children to read, every single child becoming a lifelong lover of reading and literature. When I think about that quote, He said that at a time when enslaved peoples were forbidden to learn to read, to know how to read, or even to possess a book, why didn't they want us to know how to read? Uh, Today is one of those days when I sort of conjecture that times really haven't changed at all since that time of enslavement where Black people were not allowed to read, could not learn to read, were not to be taught to read. While the laws may have changed, the power dynamic, the oppression and marginalization of people of color, primarily black and brown people and our indigenous Native American peoples are feeling that same pressure. I got an email yesterday from a group of equity warriors in a large Southern city. These are regular community people who have been fighting for literacy in their community for more than 20 years. Now, this is a community, just to get a sense of it, it is 67% white, 22% black, 6% Latinx, and about 3% Asian. This group has come together from or, or been created out of a variety of groups. It's a city where they have a vision, these people, of a a city of justice, where it's systems assure, so educational systems, make sure that all people are treated fairly. It is a broad coalition. I look them up, you know, I do my homework. So I looked them up. They are both black and white. They are truly focused on equity for all the children in their communities. And they sent me evidence. Now, I always tell you, I'll reach out to me, ask me your questions, tell me what's going on, and I'll do what I can. They sent evidence. They sent me news articles going back more than 20 years ago. They sent me op-eds. They sent me a history of their work going back in that community for decades. Now, our conversation, my conversation with them continues, and I am personally providing them with all the support they can use in their battle, because their battle is my battle. So this episode is not so much for them. They're getting what they need. This episode is for you equity warriors out there who may have similar struggles. So I have to start this story, and this is sort of how they came about knowing who I am. And it's my story of of the journey I took in education when I was first confronted with a classroom of sixth graders who, for the most part, could not read. And 
I came upon, not by happenstance, but was directed towards a solution to that problem. And it was something that we adopted um, and it worked. It worked for all of my kids. All of my sixth graders were then leaving my class literate. They could read, they could write, they could think critically about what they read, and they were able to use their skills and literacy to learn more about the world that they lived in, to engage in their contentary instruction in science and social sciences, and to think critically about what it was they were reading. Isn't that our job as educators? right? So those of you who know my story, who have read my book, you know, I left the classroom and I became a literacy consultant for a major publishing company. And in my years there, I was still fighting. I fought against solutions that didn't meet the needs of the learners that were in their classrooms. I fought for solutions for literacy programs that did meet the needs of our most marginalized and oppressed learners. I fought against fads and trends that were not good for kids. I fought against things that were against things that damaged the psyche of children. And I fought for scientifically validated solutions. The joys that I had in my time in that role was to see districts turn around. And then though I would see new leadership come in and throw out what was working in favor of what was trendy to put their stamp on a district, to make their preferences the choice. And then with that, I saw the return of tremendous achievement gaps and year after year of cohorts of marginalized learners doomed to failure. It was part of the reason I left the classroom because I was a bit at odds with administration, central administration, who didn't like the methodology, but our kids were learning to read, but they didn't like the way we taught not the outcome, but the way, making changes that marginalized our learners that doomed them to a life of illiteracy because of their own egos. So here's what's going on. This challenge is happening in a school district that's about to choose a new reading and literacy program. And then this, this community group contacted me to ask me for help. How do we get them to see what's right for our children? And the thing is, this group already knew what was right. This is a system, a school district, where only 23%, 23% of their elementary students are proficient in reading. That's less than one in four. Sit down four children, and only one of them will be able to read and write at grade level. That's not right. And I always ask, so whose children are these that are impacted? The data in their system it tells us that some of the children are entering kindergarten with over a thousand hours of academic prep under their belts. These are children of greater privilege who've gone to a good pre-K program. A thousand hours of academic prep before they ever hit the kindergarten classroom. But our marginalized learners are coming into kindergarten with less than 10 hours of prep. You see that provision gap is not a gap, but a chasm, and it's there before they ever enter the public schoolhouse doors. Now, the district, I'm told, is leaning towards a program, and I checked it out for myself, that has absolutely no scientific evidence. It has no, no evidence of effectiveness for children of color. It has no evidence of effectiveness for children who are classified as Title I, children who are of low financial wealth. And it has no evidence of effectiveness for children who are below proficient. Again, 77% of the elementary children in this district 
there is no evidence that the solution that they're looking at is going to work. Think about that. What if this were, I don't know, a drug? Would you use a drug that had no evidence of treating the illness that you took your child to the doctor to have treated? I wouldn't. But worse than that, worse than this potential choice, having no evidence of effectiveness, they are actively fighting against a proven, not they, the group that contacted me, but others in the system are fighting against a proven solution that previously worked to bring their lowest performers to proficient years ago. The same thing I used in my classroom. And that's how they knew that I knew that they were on the right track. What they want is an ELA program that has more than 50 years of scientific evidence of proof, like penicillin, that every child will learn to read. I know that to be true because it worked in my classroom. And in the hundreds of thousands of classrooms, the hundreds of schools and systems that I worked with in my 16 years in that role as a literacy consultant, what they want is a program that's proven to boost students' proficiency across all measures. Isn't that what we all want for our children? For them to be proficient in decoding and comprehension and fluency, to boost their self-esteem, something that's shown to reduce referrals to special education. I can say for a fact, not just from the research, but my own eyes as a, as a consultant, I saw students reclassified from special ed to general ed. And since we know that in many large districts, the percentage of students referred to special ed is somewhere between what I've seen typically in the systems that I've worked with, 13 to 20% of children referred to special education. But the rate of true cognitive impairment is only two and a half percent. Only two and a half percent of our children have a true cognitive impairment. But we're referring 13% and up to special education, not because there's something wrong with the children, but because there's something wrong with the choices that we have made about teaching them how to read, write, think, and calculate. I saw students in my work that were on the autism spectrum, students who were classified as nonverbal. I saw them develop and use oral language appropriately. And if you've ever worked with children along the spectrum, you know that is a big thing. I've seen them learn to read with fluency and automaticity. I've used this program in trainings and, and, and working with schools for the deaf in teaching deaf children how to read, how to hear sounds and produce sounds to read orally, even though they don't have hearing. This is a program that's proven effective in reducing discipline problems. I saw it in my own classroom. And if you don't think there's a correlation between reading ability and discipline, there is. And there's tons of evidence to that effect. As a classroom teacher, when I use these reading programs as a consultant, when I use these reading programs, I saw behavior shift in the classroom. You know why? Because children love to be in the classroom when they're learning to read, when they can read, so that when they raise their hand or they don't raise their hand and you call on them, they can produce what's on the page. There are so many stories that come to my mind. There are children whose faces I can see light up in my classroom from Oh, gosh, more than 25 years ago, children who were thrilled that for the first time in their lives, they could look at the social studies book and read what was on the page to have strategies to use when they came across a word that they didn't know how to produce. I had one student, and I'm not going to call his name, 
I call him DJ when I tell his story. And he was a challenged child behaviorally, some behavioral issues historically, but he learned to read in my classroom. And one day when he was about to be suspended, and I may have told this story before, I tell it a lot. He was about to be suspended because he hit someone. And sitting in the office, I looked at him and I said, you know, why? You were doing so well. He didn't have an answer for that. But what he did ask was if while he was suspended, he could still come to school for reading class. He still wanted to come to school because he had learned to read. This was a sixth grader who was finally connecting to what was being taught in the classroom. That's the type of program we're looking at, that people are actively fighting against implementing. I know as a consultant, when I supervised implementations, it was always my joy to come back after teachers had gotten going and the kids were getting the hang of it. And I remember this one young man in a middle school in Hayward, California, and he had been a bit of a challenge when I was there modeling lessons before he was challenging me at every turn. And when I came back a few months later, oh, and by the way, this child, he was a seventh grader who was reading at about a first grade level at the beginning of the year. So imagine his frustration in the rest of his classrooms. When I came back after they'd gotten going and he was reading aloud and, you know, I just, you can see I'm smiling now. It always just brings a smile to my face when I see children have made this breakthrough and their ability to learn how to read, to look at things on a page and be able to turn that print into words that come out of their mouths. And he looked at me and he said, I'm pretty good now, huh? And he was. And that's what we want for all our children. If I go back to this district, this district has huge disproportionality in their suspensions and expulsions. The district is 67% white, 22% black. Okay. Keep those numbers in your head. White children only make up 20% of suspensions, 20%, but the district is 67% white. I bet you can guess the second number. Black children make up 68% of suspensions, while they are only 22% of student enrollment. That is statistically improbable were it not for other actions taking place in the classrooms. That type of upside-down correlation means that implicit bias is hard at work in that those classrooms. It means that we are not teaching or they are not teaching those Black children how to read, write, think, and be engaged and instruction. But what if those Black kids, those 12,220 suspensions last year, yes, I looked up the number, 12,220 Black kids suspended, not kids suspended, but Black children's suspensions last school year, had an equitable opportunity to learn to read, to write, to think, to calculate, to learn problem solving in science and history, all history, because they can read. You see, if we cater to those that have privilege, to the privileged few, you actively do harm to the vast majority of your learners. And clearly the privileged few are those who are entering kindergarten with a thousand plus hours of academic instruction. The privileged few are the ones whose parents will take them to Kumon and to Sylvan, who take them on vacations where they are engaged with culture, who take trips to the museum, to the library, who have homes filled with books and literature. We cater to them. We are harming 
the vast majority of our learners. When educators refuse to acknowledge and act on the science, well, in the first place, they're not educators, but people employed in our school systems, when they refuse to acknowledge and act on the science, they do harm. And we have to ask why, for what reason? Because they don't care, because it's popular or easy for them to do something different, to do something that doesn't work for the vast majority of children. Is there some other nefarious reason to knowingly choose to do what will do the most harm to the most children, to intentionally oppress and marginalize, to continue to fuel a school-to-prison pipeline? We hear people say all the time that a rising tide lifts all boats. Explicit systematic instruction and phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, vocabulary, and comprehension, those things never hurt any child, gifted or cognitively impaired. See, for gifted kids, that explicit systematic instruction just means they'll soar faster, higher, and that's okay. And for those children who've not come to school in kindergarten with a thousand hours of pre-K under their belts, who've not come to school with a, a huge vocabulary base, who've not come to school having previously been engaged in literature and the arts and music, for those children they need that level of explicit systematic instruction. It's something that I write about in my book, that I wrote about in my book, Affecting Change for Culturally and Linguistically Diverse Learners. Pick that up. Read the two chapters in theory, methodology, and doing the right thing for children in our classrooms. Because the absence of that type of explicit systematic instruction, that proven scientific structure that proven scientific pedagogy and methodology of teaching children how to read, that absence has doomed millions of our children to a life of low wages, a life of incarceration, a life on the streets, lives of no choice. Think about that. To those of you who are either employed by a school system. And to those of you equity warriors, like the group that contacted me, do your homework, follow the science, do the right thing when it comes to teaching children how to read and then having them leverage that knowledge so that they read to learn for a lifetime. Do the right thing right. Implement as designed with fidelity, because when we do that, we support each child's freedom to become whomever they wish to become. And then join me again next week. Connect with me on social using those links down below. Send me your questions, your topics, your requests. Thank you for those who are sending them. And of course, I will answer those. And when I can't, I'm bringing you experts to help address those topics. Don't worry about the things you cannot change. Change the things you can no longer accept. And I'll see you next week. That's it for today's episode of the 3E Podcast. Head over to iTunes and subscribe to the show. One lucky listener every single week that posts a review on iTunes will win a chance in a grand prize drawing to win a $25,000 value private VIP day with Dr. Barry herself. Be sure to head over to 3epodcast.com and pick up a free copy of Dr. Barry's gift. Then join us on the next episode.